Welcome to American Indian Living, a program developed by the Native Education and Health Initiative to improve and enhance the health of people throughout the Native communities. American Indian Living is hosted by Dr. David DeRose, a board-certified specialist in both internal medicine and preventive medicine. Dr. DeRose has a wide range of experience with Native health issues, and he's ready today to help you learn more about your health. Here's Dr. DeRose. Welcome to American Indian Living. I am Dr. David DeRose. We are here doing another show from the venue of the National Congress of American Indians. The show is being recorded in October of 2019, and we are in a convention hall in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Across from me is a guest who is a familiar guest to many of you, if you are regular listeners. Her name is Dr. Joni Bakavoy. Joni, it's great to have you with us. Thank you. Great to be here. Joni, folks that know you and know of you, they're aware that you have deep roots in Indian country. For those who don't know you, tell us a little bit about your background. Okay. So I have um, a degree in public health, Doctor of Public Health Preventive Care, and my focus is on prevention. My background is as a um, I'm Cherokee, Cherokee um, registered member of the Cherokee tribe, Cherokee Nation. And my focus is working on prevention. So prevention with the tribe. So prevention, healthcare disparities, anything where um, there's some issues in terms of health that may not be what it should be in Indian country. You do exciting work. I know you've worked in big hospital systems over the years. Uh, you're a person who's familiar with looking at data and drawing practical conclusions from it. Just as a, as a sample of some of the things that you've done over the years, give us a feel for how you've used information to make a difference in people's lives. Okay, great. I'll tell you about a recent um, project that I was working on. So we were looking at uh, some health disparities in Indian country, and we were particularly focused on Nevada and looking at the Page, Nevada area. Mm-hmm. Um, what we found is one of the big health disparities in particularly Navajo Nation, which is what are a lot of the folks around Page, Arizona, was dental problems. Mm-hmm. So a lot of oral health and dental problems. They didn't have good access to dental care. So those that live in Page, if they wanted to get good care, they would have to go at least an hour away mm-hmm. to one of the towns, either in St. George, Utah, and there was another town near Flagstaff um, that they would have to go to to get dental health care. And there was a really long waiting line. Okay. So basically, they might have had, quote, tribal benefits or some kind of coverage for dental services. But practically speaking, when you factor the distance and then the waiting time, I mean, if you've got a bad toothache, you can't wait three months, right? Correct. Correct. So what were these individuals doing then? Well, a lot of them were just using over-the-counter pain meds. Oh, wow. And what's really sad is then your teeth start rotting. And then they get at the point where they have to be pulled. Wow. So there's these huge dental needs. You see this disparity. Correct. How can you then take that data and turn it into action? What What would you do? So we, we were aware of an organization that had dentists who wanted to give their time freely. Mm-hmm. And there was also another organization that they partnered with that provided uh, like a mobile unit that we could have um, lots of, they, they had the chairs that we could set up. They had um, the, um, yeah, you know, the dental equipment. 
um, medication that they would need, mm-hmm. um, and that we were able to use that to uh, do a mobile clinic. And okay. we figured we could do like a three-day mobile clinic. Wow, tremendous. So you take the data, you see that there's a problem, and then you start strategizing solutions. Correct. So we can see how this can work in, in real life. How about for those who might be involved in tribal health delivery? So talking about a hospital, a hospital system in a, in a larger nation, uh, maybe a system of clinics. I know you've worked with some large hospital systems. What kind of issues did you tackle in those settings? Well, I think one of the big things that we always tackled is those patients that kept coming back. Okay. So the patients that kept coming back over and over, and also those that used the emergency department as their primary care. Mm-hmm. And with that, and one of the health systems that I was working with, their their goal was to create better primary care. So okay. they would have primary care clinics that patients could go to, and they made it so that actually the physicians would follow their patients better and be more available if patients had an issue or problem rather than having to go to the emergency room. Excellent. So we're talking about how having information, like knowing which patients are heavy utilizers of the emergency room or uh, being lost to follow-up, then you can take that and you can strategize. So let's step back now to the bigger picture because a lot of folks talk about disparities And uh, specifically, when we talk about disparities in Indian country, you have to have data on, for example, who's native, who's not. You and I, before we got behind the mics, were talking a little bit about this challenge. And uh, for someone working uh, with a tribe, what kind of issues are we facing today and what can we do better? So one thing is you don't have very good data on tribal, on who, you know, what tribe, specifically what tribal affiliations patients have. Hmm. They may just be called Caucasian, and they don't say anything about whether or not they're affiliated with a tribe. So we're talking about maybe looking at hospital data, for example? Hospital data, or even public health data. Okay. So public health data, they know it's very underrepresentative for tribes because a lot of times people don't identify as a tribal member or... The way the questions ask is just what's your ethnicity, and it was, it's either American Indian or other. Mm-hmm. Okay, fair enough. So basically what you're saying is there may even be more disparities in some areas if we could ac- accurately classify who the Native individuals were and who are part of other uh, segments of the population. Absolutely. So what's the practical message then for someone listening in today? if? Uh, a native person is listening in California or Maine or Florida or anywhere you know in between. Is there any practical lesson? Well, I would say first of all, the census is coming up in 2020. Okay. And it'd be really important, as much as possible, to make sure that native communities define themselves as they should mm-hmm. um, with their tribes. And there's that opportunity now with the census. So, is there some way for a tribe? As a, a tri, you know, tribal organization, a, a tribal council, can they be proactive in their community as far as helping identify uh, or work with the census to connect those uh, those dots, if you will? Oh, absolutely. In fact, I'm here at NCAI, and they're really encouraging folks to get involved with their communities and do some innovative, creative things okay. to really have folks get their voice and, and really let them know that they need to be represented. So share their data, share their information. So let's step away from talking about the data so much 
and segue to talking about some more solutions because okay. I know, Joni, you and I have been in a variety of, of settings together. I know you have a special interest in the, the mental health area. Absolutely. Tell us what kind of opportunities you see for innovative mental health strategies in Indian country. Well, I think there's a lot of opportunities for that because I think a lot of times we focus on the body and not on the mind, mm -hmm. and yet there's such a close interaction. Mm -hmm. And so al almost, well, actually all health programs should also have a mental health component. Okay. And so part of it is evaluating. Uh -huh. And there are some questionnaires that we can maybe customize so that they're more native-friendly, uh -huh. that we can get good data about brain health. Okay. So let's say a clinic or let's say even an individual is aware of someone who has mental health needs. A lot of times I've seen this, and it's not just an Indian country problem, people are reluctant to go to mental health professionals. Maybe they feel uh, there's some kind of stigma, they'll, they'll be labeled. Maybe it's uh, that they don't have trust in the individuals who are providing the care. Are there strategies that individuals can use, even on a preventive basis. Let's talk prevention first. We're not talking about a person who's tuning in today and they're suicidal mm -hmm. uh, or extremely depressed. But are there things that people can do that help to ensure good mental health, even if they may not have uh, easy access to mental health care services? So there are a number of things that can be done that are really simple and mm -hmm. they're evidence-based. Okay. A um, couple things that come to mind, and this may seem crazy, but things like just eating more vegetables, <laughs> having uh -huh. a better diet, okay. um, where you avoid more sugary um, foods uh -huh. and high-carbohydrate foods, just you know, keeping it simple, where you're, the more healthy you are, the better you are eating plant-based diet. Okay. It actually really helps your brain. Another strategy, which I think would be really good in, in Indian country, is something that was tried in Kenya because they had a very poor, um, they didn't have a, a really good group of mental health professionals that would go to the rural areas. Okay. And so they actually engaged grandmothers to okay. be listeners. Huh. And they had these, um, they got some education from mental health professionals mm -hmm. on good listening strategies. And they found that areas where they had a high suicidal population, mm -hmm. that just having those grandmothers there and available for the younger folks, and it wasn't mm -hmm. just younger folks, older folks too could talk mm -hmm. to them, um, that had a huge impact on just their suicide um, mortality, which was very interesting. Now, this is very interesting. It is. So I'm trying to apply this now to Indian country. We, we were taking something that happened in Kenya mm -hmm. and bringing it uh, right here into the U.S., so am I hearing you correct, Joni, if, let's say, a tribe or a region in a larger tribal nation, there's a high rate of suicide, one possible strategy might be for the public health professionals to train, quote, grandmothers to actually somehow be involved in, what, identifying mental health needs? Or are they they're saying we're available to talk with people? How did they employ that? So the way they did it wasn't so much to identify the mm -hmm. mental health needs, but to be available as a listener. Okay. So as an active listener. Uh-huh. Because a lot of times with mental health, and like you mentioned about the stigma, um, you know, folks won't go to a mental health professional, mm -hmm. but they might talk to a friend. Right, right. But if they had a neutral person like a grandmother, mm -hmm. that's even better 
because it's somebody that, you know, maybe have wisdom of the ages. And, you know, in, in Native country, we really honor our our women. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's a lot of matriarchal societies. Mm-hmm. And it's an opportunity for for youth and, and the, even those older to kind of share their story and be heard. Excellent. So these, quote, grandmothers, and I keep saying, quote, because theoretically it could be a mother or it could be someone who never sure. had any children. Right. Right. So it's someone who basically has presumably some time right. and also some life experience. Right. So do you have any idea how extensive that training was? I mean, are we talking about many years before you could bring these people online? My understanding, it was very simple, and I wish I had the reference. Uh-huh. Um, I could get that. Maybe you can list it on your website. Okay. But the my understanding that it was very simple, and they did screen who they trained. Mm-hmm. because they wanted to make sure that that person was healthy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then they um, supported that person also so that they would have an opportunity to have their own kind of connections mm-hmm. um, so that, you know, they would have like an ongoing support system as okay. they supported other folks coming to talk to them. And do you know, uh, Dr. Bakavoy, were these individuals referred to by healthcare providers, or was it just by word of mouth? Word of mouth. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a fascinating concept. So really, it, it brings me back to something we we studied some years ago when we were uh, writing our book, 30 Days to Natural Blood Pressure Control. We found that there was a, a movement in, in some circles in the medical field where they were saying, even with something as, quote, easily treatable as high blood pressure with medication, that many people were falling through the cracks, that we didn't have the kind of rates of blood pressure control that we should have. And their strategy was that we should use individuals from the community, uh, lay people, train them to be involved uh, in helping address high blood pressure. So really it's a very similar uh, picture only with uh, depression and, and suicide risk, isn't it? Absolutely. So, Joni, we are in the, the home stretch for our first segment of today's edition of American Indian Living. You've shared with us, I would say, some really practical things as far as valuing uh, data, measuring things, looking at data, trying to strategize solutions. But you've also given us a beautiful picture that encourages us that, that we have resources in ourselves, even if we're not health professionals, to help our communities. Any final words of encouragement to our listeners? I would just say, just know that there's always hope and there's always some creative way to address any kind of health needs or mental health needs and keep it simple. Wow, powerful stuff. Joni Bakavoy, thanks for joining us. We're going to step away just briefly. We've got some more great guests coming up on today's edition of American Indian Living. Don't go away. More from Albuquerque right after this. Today's broadcast has been pre-recorded. However, if you have questions about today's show or would like further information, please call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. We'll be right back after this. This is Betty White. I know you don't need one more thing to worry about, but listen. High blood pressure can cause kidney damage, blindness, heart attack, stroke. And you can have high blood pressure even if you feel all right. One in seven adults has it. But it's easy to get your blood pressure checked, and you can treat it if it is too high. So don't worry about it. Don't ignore it. Just see your doctor and check it out. For your free booklet, visit the Will Rogers Institute at wrinstitute.org and find us on Facebook and Twitter. 
Emergency medical unit, respond to 102 Maple Avenue, possible stroke victim. When stroke occurs, you have 60 minutes to win or lose the race of your life. There are new treatments, but you must get to a hospital fast. If you suddenly feel weakness on one side, have trouble speaking, walking, or seeing, it could be a stroke. Call 911. Get to a hospital. Because how you spend the next 60 minutes could determine how you spend the rest of your life. Stroke. Know the signs. Act in time. A message from the National Institute of Neurological Disorders in Stroke. If you receive disability benefits, keeping Social Security informed is key. Keeping us informed minimizes the chance that we learn about something later that could negatively affect your benefits. That's the surprise no one wants because it creates overpayments that you must repay, disrupts payments, and can even jeopardize your entitlement to Social Security benefits. Learn more about reporting responsibilities for people working and receiving disability or SSI benefits by reading our online publications, Working While Disabled, How We Can Help, and How Work Affects Your Benefits at www.socialsecurity.gov pubs. Some changes can be reported online at www.socialsecurity.gov. You can also notify us at 1-800-772-1213 or contact your local Social Security office. Our goal at Social Security is to pay you the right amount on time every month. With your cooperation to keep us informed of changes, the likelihood of any unpleasant surprises that could derail your benefits will be greatly minimized. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE, 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. Welcome back to American Indian Living. Dr. David DeRose, continuing our show from the venue of the National Congress of American Indians here in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We're recording this show in October of 2019. And across from me is another person who's been making an impact here at the uh, venue. It's Louise Foti. Louise is the Warning Coordination Meteorologist at the Anchorage Forecast Office Louise, it's great to have you with us. Thank you so much. I'm really excited about being here. Now, this may be hard for you to believe, Louise, but I've been doing this show for some 17 years. I have never, until today, had the privilege of having any warning coordination meteorologist on the show. Do you find that astounding? Well, I think we have a a singular focus, and sometimes people have a difficult time making the connection between health and weather. So I don't actually find it that surprising, but it makes me particularly happy to have this opportunity with you. Well, it's great to have you with us. Help us for those who are saying, okay, well, this woman is obviously qualified, but what in the world is a warning coordination meteorologist? I mean, it sounds self-explanatory, but is it really? It, you know what? My job title does not really reflect what I do. Okay. I don't think. Okay. So it, it kind of has that uh, sound of working with just weather warnings. And that certainly is one part of my job. But really what I'm doing is working with the customers. Hmm. Who are the customers? Well, that's pretty much everybody okay. in the United States, whether it's somebody who's a fisherman or an emergency manager or even just the general public, you know, Mm -hmm. somebody who's listening to the weather every day. And I want to make sure that everybody has the information that they need to make safe decisions when it comes to the weather, Uh, whether it's sheltering from a tornado or not driving through high water or preparing for a storm. So they need to have a timely, 
forecast, but also in a way that they can understand it and respond to it. And so I receive information from those people about what they need. I make sure that we are giving them the right information. And I take that back to our forecast office so that the people who are working at the desk, which sometimes it is me as well, mm-hmm. we can put together the information that those people need. And, and we need to have certain tools to be able to do that as well. So making sure the two sides, the customer side and the forecasting side, have the things that they need to uh, make sure that everybody stays safe in in times of dangerous weather. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I mean, weather is, of course, uh, you know, integral to our health. I mean, whether you're talking about uh, the indigenous farmer, uh, the family that's that's raising some of their own food, whether you're talking about, like you mentioned, people that are, are doing things on the waters, whether it's any of us traveling, just living in our homes, right, with interruptions to the power grid and and uh, dangerous weather circumstances. All kinds of things. And I find that when you talk with um, Native people, they're so frequently involved in the out-of-doors that they really pay attention to weather in a way that, you know, when you go to the cities, you don't find people quite as engaged. Mm. So they know that how much that uh, the weather impacts their livelihoods and their safety. And so... They really want to know what's going to happen and and how to prepare for it. And uh, it's a really great group of people to be working with when it comes to weather. I love the weather. Uh I love to see other people excited about the weather, too. (laughs) Now, I've got your business card in front of me, and it's got a number of other connections here. One of them is what's sometimes simply called NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, I think many people have heard the acronym. You also got a shirt that you're wearing and a booth that has National Weather Service. Help us understand how some of these different organizations uh, interrelate. It can be a little confusing. So the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, I like to call them the umbrella organization. So they encompass a lot of different things, including national marine fisheries, we have the Office of Atmospheric Research. Hmm. We have a satellite uh, division within NOAA. Okay. And then National Weather Service is one piece of NOAA. And we just cover the weather. We're not mm-hmm. looking at the fisheries or, uh, you know, the marine mammals, for example. Mm-hmm. But we work with these other agencies as well. Okay. So you're part of the National Weather Service. Yes. And because you're in the Anchorage Forecast Office, it's probably safe to assume there's forecast offices throughout the country. That's right. We have 122 forecast offices across the country. So I'll be honest with you. I've probably been guilty of this. I shouldn't admit it maybe on the air and even to uh, someone like you, Louise. But we were just watching the weather forecast uh, the other day, and I turned to my wife, who's also a physician, and I said, you know, Sonia, I think I went into the wrong business. I mean, these guys can be wrong and no one gets too upset about it but if we're wrong you know everyone gets in big trouble uh so uh, but i, I <laughs> well, know that's a bit tongue-in-cheek let me let me correct you for a yeah, second please, let help, me tell help, you help if we're straight. wrong if we're wrong we definitely get to hear about it i i like to say you kind of have to have a, a thick skin to uh-huh. work in this industry but I think sometimes people are afraid to give negative feedback about the forecast because they are afraid of hurting our feelings. And 
I know I'm going to be wrong. Mm -hmm. And I would like to hear it when it's a little bit wrong versus mm -hmm. when it's a lot wrong. So if, if we hear th that our forecast is a little bit off track, we can correct and bring it back to, to what's actually happening. But, you know, if you get to the point where you're like, oh my gosh, I almost died. Well, I don't want it to ever get to that point. Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. if you have negative feedback about our forecast, we're off the rails. We're used to hearing that. And we we don't get our feelings hurt. We just want to improve what we're doing. Okay, fair enough. So thanks for uh, setting the record straight there, Louise. I'm going to get into some other dangerous ground here. Maybe I should have let you know the questions before we uh, actually did the interview. But this is not a scripted interview, so I didn't have the questions to begin with. But I I'm going to tell you something else or ask you something. And you may not want to tell me, but I've made this observation over the years that uh, those who are trying to safeguard the public when it comes to weather seem like their bias is to err on the side of saying things will be worse than they might materialize. Is that a deliberate kind of bias that you have? Well, that's a really good question, actually. And yes, most people, most forecasters will be more conservative because mm -hmm. if you are more conservative and people take action and stay safe, then that's a positive outcome. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But there's a thin line there right. because if you're always, you know, saying the sky is falling, well, now people are going to stop believing you uh -huh. if it doesn't uh -huh. happen. So we have to be careful not to be too conservative okay uh, but generally if i'm looking at between a and b and b is a little bit worse uh -huh. then i'm probably going to pick b if i really think that there's a possibility that this is going to happen again the national weather service our mission describes that we are we are here to provide forecast uh data for the safety of life and property and the enhancement of the national economy. So our focus is really saving people's lives and uh, doing what we can to make sure they stay safe. So we're going to be a little conservative mm -hmm. because of that. Now, in this day and age, a lot of people do get their weather information directly from the National Weather Service. They may actually log on to something. They may get a warning that comes across their smartphone but I know historically, and still many of us, you know, we'll be watching network news. Uh, the local news forecaster is, is telling you what he or she thinks the weather's going to be. Is it safe to say that the National Weather Service is, uh, is providing some, well, I, I don't want to say some protection against extreme individual views, but is it a safer forecast to go, and I know you've got bias because you represent the National Weather Service, but if there's a question about what's coming up, National Weather Service, should that be my, my go-to spot? Or any uh, meteorologist is probably going to give me the same information. Well, the forecast that you get from a meteorologist on TV highly depends on that meteorologist and their expertise. So mm -hmm. some TV meteorologists do use the National Weather Service forecast directly and uh, will go ahead and create graphics. Others will adapt the forecast to what they think is going to happen and, and create graphics that reflect that. So it, it depends on who you're listening to. Mm -hmm. I view the media as a really important partner because they have such a role in keeping people safe as well. And people trust the media. That's mm -hmm. the person that you see every night on your TV. And we don't have that presence uh, except for in Alaska. We do have a TV okay, show in Alaska. Okay. But uh, we don't have that presence. So 
we've actually been doing a lot of work in recent years to kind of consolidate uh, how we say messaging across the TV mm. and radio mm -hmm. uh, for the general public because I find that most meteorologists are in the same of the same mindset. We all want to keep people safe. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So working together, I think we can come up with a great message and that way um, people can stay safe, whether they're using the National Weather Service or going through TV or radio. I would hope we would all have the same mission. Our time for this segment has uh, rapidly slipped away, Louise, and there's so many other things I would like to talk with you about because you've got a lot of great resources. Is there any way that you or someone else from your team can stay by for our next segment? I think we should have time for that. Okay. We have to step away. Before we do, Louise, if someone does want more information about what the National Weather Service does, is there a single place to point them? I think the best place is www.weather.gov. That's our National Weather Service website. So it's www.weather.gov. Yes. We're stepping away just for a couple of minutes. Louise and her team from the National Weather Service, they're going to stay by. You stay by, too. Some fascinating stuff that you don't want to miss right after this. American Indian Living will continue in a moment. If you have questions or comments about today's pre-recorded broadcast, please call one 800 775 hope that's 1-800-775-4673 so you want to be a hero here are some ways to get the job hunt down that killer shark or run into a burning house to save a kitten luckily there's an easier way to become a hero call 911 if you see someone experiencing the symptoms of stroke sudden weakness on one side or trouble speaking walking or seeing stroke know the signs act in time you'll be a real hero a message from the national institute of neurological disorders and stroke can you guess what's going on here it's kids getting fit studies show that children and teens who get at least 60 minutes of physical activity a day reduce the risk of obesity heart disease anxiety and increase their overall mood so whether it's around your neighborhood or at school just get out and play for your free booklet, visit WRInstitute.org or call toll-free 877-957-7575 and find us on Facebook and Twitter. The Will Rogers Institute, since 1936. My name is Tom Thornton. And my name is Cindy Thornton. We're retired, and this is how we live united. We decided to volunteer with United Way at our community free health clinic. United Way is how we contribute. Because we know our time and money are going to the right places. Judging by the thank yous we get at the clinic, I'd say we're doing the right thing with our retirement, too. We're Tom and Cindy Thornton. We volunteer at our community free health clinic. We don't just wear the shirt. We live it. Give. Advocate. Volunteer. Live United. Go to liveunited.org. Brought to you by United Way and the Ad Council. Diabetes affects more than 29 million Americans. If left untreated, diabetes can lead to serious health problems such as heart disease, stroke, blindness, and kidney disease. Your family's health history can be an important factor in determining your risk of developing diabetes. The National Diabetes Education Program wants to help you and your family. Do all you can to prevent or delay the onset of type 2 diabetes. Visit yourdiabetesinfo.org to learn more. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE, 1-800-775-4673. 
Here again is Dr. DeRose. Welcome back to American Indian Living. Dr. David DeRose here with Louise Fody. Louise works for the National Weather Service. She's based in Anchorage, Alaska, and we're talking together about health and weather. She's been sharing secrets uh, from the meteorologist with us, and we appreciate your honesty and uh, integrity. Thank you. i got to tell you about my own background because uh, many years ago now, I moved from the East Coast to the heart of Indian country, to Oklahoma, and I started learning about people I had never heard about. Now, you know, today these folks are, you know, on TV shows and everything, but I had never heard of a storm spotter. And uh, we learned how important that was there in uh, in the Southwest because of those uh, tornadoes that come through, you know, Texas, Oklahoma, Kansas, uh, you know, that whole area out there. And uh, one of the things that was interesting to me is just how many people really got engaged with this and got serious about it. They were sharing at that time audio uh, recordings that were t- and, and videos that were teaching people, you know, what to look for in the weather. Tell us a little bit about what you're doing to educate people about dangerous uh, cloud formations, impending storms, especially in tornado country. Well, that's right. So the Storm Spotter Guide or the Storm Spotter Program really had a big emphasis starting in tornado country. And we have a number of different ways that we reach out to the general public. Of course, this is all back in the days before Facebook and Instagram and those sorts of things. So really, it was kind of the early version of crowdsourcing, getting information from people who are out there experiencing the weather. And we'll have Uh, Every office within the National Weather Service has its own spotter program. And so the morning coordination meteorologist or other uh, forecasters from the office will go out to the community and deliver a talk about what to look for when you're looking for um, tornadoes. But we don't focus on just tornadoes. We're looking at hail. We're looking at gusty winds. Mm -hmm. And then we look at tons of other things, too. So I know in Anchorage... We don't frequently see severe storms. We we have severe thunderstorms on occasion, mm-hmm. but a big focus for us are snow measurements and okay. wind measurements because uh-huh. that's where we see the most damage and where we really need that information to improve our forecasts. So we provide spotter training that includes things about hail and gusty winds, of course, from thunderstorms, but we spend most of our time focusing on winter weather and other types of of weather. And I personally would like to see more information from our folks who live on the coast. So one thing that we really struggle with up in Alaska is getting information about coastal erosion and and coastal flooding. Sometimes we'll get this information you know, quite a while after the actual event happens. And we can use that, but it's so much more helpful if we get it when the event is actually occurring and we can determine that, oh, yeah, actually, this is a a warning level event and people's houses are being threatened. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's another piece of information that's really helpful. Again, this is just really kind of the um, the early version of crowdsourcing, we do use other things like Facebook and Instagram, but it's always helpful if we can get a phone call or a lot of uh, 
websites, including the Anchorage website, will have an online storm report that you mm-hmm. can just go click a button and enter your information about what kinds of weather you're seeing. And, and that is really helpful for our forecasters in a real-time environment. Wow. So I, this brings up a whole other interesting side of what you do, because I had the privilege of stopping by your booth prior to the interview. Uh, we're here, of course, at the National Congress of American Indians in an exhibit hall, and you folks with the National Weather Service have a a significant presence here. Uh, Maybe just to kind of step back for a minute before we talk about my interaction with you there, tell us why Indian country is a priority in your office. Well, for me personally, because I work in Anchorage, I work with a lot of Native American folks. We we have a large number of Native Alaskans. And the folks who live uh, outside of Anchorage live in some of the most vulnerable areas in our our country. And so uh, when we're looking at things like disappearing sea ice and huge coastal storms, that's really impactful to those people who are living out there. And my job is to provide weather information to everybody it's not just for people living in the cities. So I really want to connect with the Alaska Natives who are living in the villages because their information is important too and their lives are equally as important to me as somebody who lives in Anchorage or Kenai or Fairbanks. We appreciate so much uh, you know, the vision that you folks have. And I know there's a number of representatives from throughout Indian country. I think you have someone from Arizona here, right? Someone else from uh, where are some of the other Spokane, areas? Washington. Okay. Very good. So here, back to my encounter with you there at the the booth. We were talking about this topic of how you get data. And, of course, you have formal observation stations right throughout the United States, and that's under NOAA, presumably? Right. So the National Weather Service, we collect weather data all over the place. And as you might imagine, these, these stations can be expensive. So one of the things we do is look at every possible way we can get weather information. We do a lot of partnership with other organizations, for example, the FAA, Mm -hmm. or um, we have uh, water observations that we partner with. Um, But a really important part of our our observation network are our volunteer observers. Okay. So the spotter program is part of that. Those uh-huh. are all volunteers. But we also have uh, our co-op network. We have folks who purchase their own weather station just for the interest, and uh-huh. they can be part of the Citizens Weather Observing Program. The Citizens Weather Observing Program. That's right. So I actually purchased my own weather station, okay. as you okay. might imagine. I'm okay. kind of a, a weather nerd. Uh-huh. And in in the box came a slip that said, you can apply to be part of the Citizens Weather Observing Program, uh-huh. and CWAP is what we call it. And it, you apply online, and then as long as you have an internet connection, your data from your weather station is being uploaded. And that is available for anyone to look at, uh-huh. including the National Weather Service. Okay. So that's another source of data. Uh-huh. Of course, we work with schools. We work with um, you know uh, private agencies who would be willing to share their data. Mm-hmm. So I can say... I. 
as a meteorologist, you can never have too much data. Okay, okay. <laughs> so anytime somebody wants to be a volunteer observer, whether it's a consistent observer, that might be somebody who's uh, great for the co-op program. We have a lot of farmers who are involved with that. Mm-hmm. Or if it's somebody who is just observing rainfall data, they might be part of the uh, COCORAS program, which is uh, they're uh, collecting precipitation data. There's so many ways to be involved with sharing information with the National Weather Service. So if someone's listening today, they perhaps live on a reservation, and maybe they say, I'm frustrated because I listen to the weather, and they tell about all these different places 100 miles away, but they never say anything about what's going to happen right where I'm at. Is that something that a tribe or an individual could say, I'm going to buy one of these weather kits and start getting data to the National Weather Service? Yes, that would exactly be the thing to do. And if you go to weather.gov and click on your area of the nation, it should take you to your local office webpage. Mm-hmm. And those people would be able to help you uh, decide what what part of the program is right for you mm-hmm. and how you can be involved and you're always your your inf- your weather information is always welcome. You folks have done a wonderful job with education and the reason I'm saying that is because at the booth I mean you have this guide a weather spotters field guide. I mean this looks pretty remarkable. I mean a lot of pictures explaining, you know, cloud formations and weather and then you also have some amazing cloud charts. Um uh, one is actually has this uh, very novel name, Cloud Chart, on it. Uh, <laughs> well, <laughs> we're not, creati- creativity in writing perhaps is not our strongest suit. <laughs> but it's, it's very descriptive. And then we've got another, uh, like a trifold here, that I've heard about these things. And I'm sure, you know, at some point in my academic career, it wasn't medical school, I'm sure, you know, I heard about cumulonimbus clouds and cirrus clouds. And I, but I'm looking here. And you've got a diagram so you can see where in the atmosphere these clouds are and then all kinds of pictures. Why do you spend, uh, I mean, this is not a cheap thing. I mean, these full-color reproductions, why do you produce these and give them out? Well, you know, actually our, our national director says if you want to learn about the weather, the first thing you learn about is the clouds and everybody can look at the clouds and you can see what the clouds are doing. And in fact, that's where weather forecasting and observation started is okay. by watching the clouds. Uh-huh. So this is, this is kind of entry level meteorology right okay. here. And plus people love clouds. Uh-huh. <laughs> I love clouds. Uh-huh. Doesn't everybody love clouds? Yeah, they're pretty impressive. So I can remember hearing of, of some of these clouds, but I don't know that I ever heard of an Alto cumulus lenticularis. Well, you know, uh, you said you live in Oklahoma. I did. I'm now. You, uh, you probably uh, would not see these very frequently where you live. Uh, uh-huh. They occur more frequently in mountainous terrain. They can occur in flat areas. It's much more unlikely, though. We okay. see them very frequently in Anchorage, and I know they see them along the front range of the. Uh, the Rockies, and they probably see them he- down here in, in Santa Fe and, and Albuquerque pretty frequently as well. And so if I identify a cloud that way, I say, wow, I'm looking at an altocumulus lenticularis. And by the way, uh, the name lenticularis to a physician, I mean, of course, I'm thinking just like as you have it described here, lens-shaped, you know, like the, the lens of the eye. But 
uh, or like a, a lentil, you know, that has kind of a you know similar oh, right. shape that beard. Yeah. But does that mean something as far as uh, you know what's going on with the weather or what I can anticipate? Yeah, actually, these these clouds indicate that there is high winds uh, up at the the level that the clouds are forming at, and usually, like I said before, there's terrain involved. Uh-huh. So the high winds, in other words, the um, the strong winds, the fast winds would need to be flowing over kind of a bump, whether it's a bump in the air or um, a bump that's caused by by mountainous terrain. And so when we see these clouds, we know that there's fast flowing winds Mm -hmm. up at that level. And that can mean a lot in terms of what kinds of weather are coming or uh, what kinds of weather might develop uh, downstream from those clouds. So the nice thing is these resources, I mean, I see... Uh, website uh, information on these different charts so people can theoretically go online and get these. But probably the most useful thing would be to contact their own forecast office. Is that safe to say? That's gr- that's right. And that's where they have the best information for your local area. Okay. So, again, Louise, if someone says, I want to learn more about the weather, how to be prepared, how I can do maybe a little bit of my own forecasting to just give me an edge on maybe what I'm hearing uh, on the news. Where does someone go? What's their, their one kind of point of contact? Uh, starting at www.weather.gov and then clicking on the map for your local area should get you to your local forecast office webpage. And uh, then from there, they can help you out. Great. Weather.gov, if you can remember that, a lot more great information. And by the way, that's what's coming up on American Indian Living. More great information. Our final segment will be up right after this. I'm Dr. David DeRose. Don't go away. Today's broadcast has been pre-recorded. However, if you have questions about today's show or would like further information, please call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. We'll be right back after this. One day, I'll teach chemistry to kids. I'm going to be an architect. My dream is to be a chef. At the U.S. Department of Education's Office of Federal Student Aid, we provide more than $150 billion each year in grants, loans, and work-study funds, making higher education possible for anyone at any stage of life. I can go back to college. I can change careers. I can make a difference. Federal Student Aid, proud sponsor of the American Mind. Learn more about money for college at studentaid.gov. Diabetes is a serious disease that runs in families. If your parents or siblings have type 2 diabetes, you have a greater chance of getting the disease. If you're African American, Hispanic, or Latino, American Indian, Alaska Native, Asian American, Native Hawaiian, or Pacific Islander, you also have a higher chance of developing the disease. The National Diabetes Education Program wants to help you understand your risk. Visit the NDEP website at yourdiabetesinfo.org for diabetes prevention tools, including the Family Health History Quiz. It started off as a normal day. I felt fine when I arrived at the plant. Ruth Junius's life was about to change. Then I dropped my keys. They kept slipping out of my hand. My arm felt numb. A co-worker asked me if I was okay, and I couldn't speak. I started to get scared. Ruth was having a stroke. People around her weren't sure what to do. They thought I should go home or lie down, but I knew something was very wrong. I wrote 911 on a piece of paper with my other hand. And someone called for me. Because everyone acted quickly, 
Doctors at the hospital were able to give Ruth treatment that started to reverse the symptoms. Within a few minutes, I was talking again. I didn't know a thing about stroke before I had one. Now I make sure that my friends and family know all the signs of stroke so they'll get help fast if they need it. No stroke. Know the signs. Act in time. Call 1-800-352-9424 for more information. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, National Institutes of Health. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE, 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. Dr. David DeRose back with Louise Foti, Warning Coordination Meteorologist for the Anchorage Forecast Office, part of the National Weather Service. Louise, I've been enjoying our interview, and I know... Before we uh, talk about some other topics, uh, we just have to share about, well, something that I'm really enthusiastic about. You folks are not just an organization who say, oh, we want to show up in Indian country, but you're really making an effort to craft messages that really speak to people throughout Indian country. One of the things that told me that is an amazing chart that you have. Tell us a little bit about what I'm looking at. Of course, the radio listeners can't see this beautiful chart that I've got right to my left here. Right. So this was developed by my coworker in uh, the Flagstaff Forecast Office. And of course, he works in uh, Navajo country and with the Hopi people. And he worked with some Nav- native Navajo speakers who were able to help him develop a Navajo language cloud chart. So the original intent was that it would be entirely in Navajo, but Mm -hmm. then some of the feedback that they got from the people who were using this is that they would like to have it in both English and Navajo Mm -hmm. to help educate the the children who are hopefully not only learning about science, but also about their background and their native language. And so he has this lovely chart that he's made, and it talks about uh, not only the clouds, but um, it, it names the clouds in the English name for it, and then also the Navajo name, and then uh, talks about how high the clouds are. But it also refers to some other weather words that are in the Navajo language and uh, talks about how uh, some of the cultural aspects of weather. Mm-hmm. So this is looking at weather from a more holistic mm-hmm. uh, aspect, not just not just the clouds and the, the scientific part, but how it influences Navajo people and their lifestyles. This is tremendous. So it's just exciting to see the, the variety of content that you've had at this uh, at this venue and even the content that you've worked with Native uh, Americans throughout the, the country. I mean, in this example, of course, the Navajo Nation and, and using uh, you know their uh, traditional language. But it's just exciting to see that uh, level of collaboration. One other fascinating aspect, and you may want to go into some detail about this, Louise, is I notice on a lot of your charts and uh, at your booth, there's this uh, WRN, Weather Ready Nation. What is that all about? Well, it goes back to our mission, which is to provide for the the safety of of people and their, their property. Mm-hmm. And how do you do that? Well, it's not just about 
getting the information out there. It's by making sure that people are prepared, that they're weather ready. Mm. So we would like everybody to plan ahead for these major weather events and know how to respond because we don't want people to be caught off guard. We want people to be thinking about their futures and, and how to stay safe so that when we send that information, you know, weather warning or even just, you know, information about an upcoming uh, it, like let's say if there's a drought or mm-hmm, if there's mm-hmm. um, flooding happening, that they're prepared to respond to that because it's it's not just about getting the weather information. It's it's knowing how to react in a way that that keeps you and your your livelihood safe. Now a lot of people, especially those that have lived close to the land, would say, well, we don't need someone to tell us how to keep safe. But the reality is, whether a person's native or not, many people are not in their ancestral homeland. They may be in an urban environment. So I think it wouldn't hurt all of us on today's show to tell us from your vantage point, what are some of the preparedness skills or messages that you'd like people across the U.S. to know, maybe especially starting uh, in your neck of the woods up there in Alaska? Well, I know in Alaska, one of the things we talk about is um, here in the lower lower 48, it's often recommended to ha- have a three-day survival kit. But okay. in Alaska, we actually recommend at least a seven-day survival kit mm-hmm. because it could be that long before uh, folks are able to come out and help a community if they're impacted by a major weather event. A lot of Alaskans are subsistence, are living on subsistence. And so they have food and, and supplies that are stored. And that's excellent. Mm-hmm. But you also need to pay attention to how you're going to be caring for your elders and how you're going mm-hmm. to be caring for your children. And the other thing that is completely challenging is this big question of climate change. Okay. So we've had situations that people are like, you know, we had a drought this year in down on the uh, Kenai Peninsula, and we had some water reserves drying up. Well, that's never happened before. Mm-hmm. So we need people to be thinking ahead. How are we going to deal with this the next time so that we can be prepared for the unfortunate impacts of climate change? Well, help us make a virtual three- or seven-day survival kit. What am I going to want to make sure I've got in there? Well, you're going to start with food and water. Okay. That's a, a good thing. You need uh, food and water for enough people in your family, so not just yourself, but everybody that might be living with you, including people that you might bring into your home, an okay. elder okay. or uh, a neighbor, for example, mm-hmm. um, for seven days. So I believe it's a gallon of water per person per day. Okay. And then uh, for food, it would be enough meals, of course, for per per day. And then uh, you'll need to have things like um, a first aid kit and any medications that you might need uh, on reserve. Uh, if there's any particular health issues, um, breathing apparatus or, or those mm, sorts of things mm-hmm. that people need. Extra clothing. Um, for example, if the power goes out, it okay. could get quite cold. Right, right. So having those things around, um, depending on what you expect, if, if there's a volcanic eruption, you could you could actually need uh, air masks, for example. So uh, ready.alaska.gov has a seven-day survival kit um, chart that you can actually use to kind of put these things together. And it even helps you. It can be quite expensive to put this all together at mm. once. So it gives you a week-by-week 
checklist that oh, each okay. week you can go you can through be kind of gradually and building put it. something new together. And so how do I find that information? It's at ready.alaska.gov, okay. and that's for the seven-day survival kit. Ready.alaska.gov. Now, someone listening from Oklahoma or Florida or New England or the Northern Plains or wherever, I mean, the show goes out throughout the lower 48 into Alaska, into Canada. Are there other ready sites, if you will, or is this something unique to Alaska? Well, so first of all, the seven-day survival kit could apply for anybody. It's oh, okay. useful for, for anyone in the nation, but uh, it is a little bit larger than the, what's recommended in the lower 48. Uh, there are other excellent resources as well. I know the Red Cross has some okay. um, survival kits, and there's even some things on the National Weather Service website on okay. how to create a survival kit. So there's lots of information out there. So very good. So people can just search survival kit, and they're likely to find some things uh, online. But that's uh, some great uh, information, ready.alaska.gov. I got that down. Right. And I, I do also recommend the Red Cross as a great source okay. of information. Louise, before all our time is gone, we haven't talked anything about something else that I know is a real concern, especially you mentioned climate change and some of these cataclysmic weather events, especially in the lower 48. And really, I, I know you're probably dealing with some of these issues now, but the whole topic of flooding and what kind of messaging is especially important in those circumstances? Well, a really important message is turn around, don't drown. We say that all the time. Well, what does it mean? When you have the water coming over roads, mm -hmm. it can look like it's it's not that fast or it's not that deep. And that's where we run into so many problems of people getting into trouble during flooding situations. So if you have flooding that's anticipated in your mm -hmm. area, I would plan ahead of time what your evacuation routes are. Know whether there's the potential for water to cross the road because you don't want to drive through it. And then know whether it's going to impact your house too and, and whether you would need to evacuate ahead of time. I know we have very little time, but is there a rule of thumb as to how much water is too much to drive through? It takes... Six inches of water to float a, a vehicle. So it really doesn't take too much. And you can't tell how deep it is. And it doesn't have to go up to the body of the car. No, it sure doesn't. Six inches, huh? Yeah. Boy, that's so not a lot of water. It's, it's, it's really dangerous. And people are often overconfident when it comes to driving through rivers. So please, please be cautious. We just recommend that you don't, don't drive through high water. I'll tell you, you've been a great help, Louise. We have to step away and uh, really say goodbye. But before we do, one more time, give us that uh, kind of overarching website where people can get more information. If you go to www.weather.gov, that's our National Weather Service website. And clicking on your area of the map will take you to your local office. And that's where you can get that local connection with all the information you need for your area. Tremendous. Weather.gov. Remember it. I'm Dr. David DeRose. That's all for today's edition of American Indian Living. Hopefully today's show has done what we always try to do and helped you to be in the very best of health. That's all for today. I'm Dr. DeRose. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.